0: sermon in your Bible is to Acts chapter 20, verses 22 through 24. Acts twenty, twenty-two through 24. The Acts of the Apostles could really be called the Acts of God the Holy Spirit, because this book is all about the Spirit of God working through the people of God to reach the world for God. So if you remember, the church began at Pentecost, Acts 2, and then the good news of Christ started in Jerusalem, and then it grew from there to reach Judea, Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth for the glory of God. As we have seen, the gospel isn't just for the Jewish people, no, but it's also for Samaritans and even for Gentiles like us, which covers everyone. Acts began by looking primarily at Peter's ministry, and then since chapter 13, Acts has been focusing on the amazing ministry of the Apostle Paul. Paul's now in the middle of his third missionary journey, and he's trying to get to Jerusalem, to take a financial gift to the needy Christians in that city. If you remember, the churches in Macedonia gave generously, even though they themselves were very poor. And Paul's trying to get that money into the Jerusalem Christians' hands. And then after that, Paul intends to finally make it to Rome. At this point, Paul's in Miletus, and he has a brief layover. And so last week we saw how Paul called for the elders of the church in Ephesus to come and visit him because he wants to talk to them. He wants to teach them, to warn them, and to exhort them, and this is the last time that he's ever going to see them. As we saw, of course, they came to see Paul, and so they made that nearly 30-mile trip to Miletus, and Paul then began to speak to them by reminding them of Paul's godly behavior and example which they clearly knew and which they couldn't deny Why did Paul remind them of this? Because he didn't want them to be sidetracked by the lies that were being spread about him, which could then sidetrack them away from the truth of the gospel and of Christ himself. Well, Paul continues to speak to them in verse 22. Let's go ahead and read that. Chapter 20, verse 22. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. Except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. What a great passage. Amazing, amazing passage. Now, if you remember from verses 18 through 21... Paul reminded these Ephesian elders how he lived among them honorably, how he served the Lord humbly, how he kept back nothing that was truly helpful, and how he preached Christ with boldness and with conviction. Well, after reminding the elders of this, Paul then says, I am going to Jerusalem. Paul's very emphatic in this conviction. (laughs) He says, see or behold, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem. The word bound means to be tied to, to be chained to, and it speaks of Paul being continually and irresistibly drawn to go to Jerusalem. He has to go there. See, he's compelled to go there. He's obligated. He must go, and he can't not go. He says that he's bound in spirit. What spirit is that? Is this his inner spirit, or is this the Holy Spirit? We're not sure. Commentators are very divided about this, but either way... Paul's convicted that this is what God wants him to do, that this is what he must do. And as a spirit-filled man, Paul knows that he has to go to Jerusalem. Yes, to take that offering to the needy Christians there, but also because he's compelled and convicted that God wants him to go there. This reminds me of how Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9. Paul, too, is setting his face to go to Jerusalem, compelled to go there. What does he expect to find? In verse 22, he says that he doesn't know what to expect, but then in the next verse, he says that there's one thing that he knows for certain, that chains and tribulations await him in every city. So there's that. Wait, but, but, but I thought that if you're really doing the will of God, then God's going to make life good, that, that, that you'd be healthy and wealthy and that nothing bad would ever happen to you. That's what I thought. Um, <laughs> wrong. <laughs> In fact, the Bible teaches the opposite. It was back in chapter 14 that Paul said, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. In 1 Timothy 3.12, Paul wrote that all who desire to live godly will suffer persecution. And so persecution in some form is a promise for us in Christ. As Peter wrote in 1 Peter 3.12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing is happening to you. In other words, as a Christian, you shouldn't be surprised by suffering. No, but instead, you should expect suffering as a Christian. Why? Because Satan hates you, and his people will also hate you. And we're in a battle, and sometimes we get wounded in that battle. Glory is later, but now is the battle, see? And so biblically, the Christian life is harder. Biblically, life would have less tribulation if you weren't a Christian. But Christ is worth it, right? He's well worth it. Pleasing Him is always worth it. And so Paul wasn't surprised that the Holy Spirit testified to him that chains and tribulations awaited him in every city. But look, that fact didn't keep him from doing what he knew God wanted him to do, for pleasing God is always better than escaping pain. And sometimes God's people even walk into pain for the glory of God. See, Paul had received a ministry from the Lord, and the one and only thing that concerned him was that he should accomplish that ministry. As one said, what lay in the course of bonds or affliction or even death mattered nothing. The doing of the appointed work was supreme for God's glory. Note that Paul doesn't like tribulations, and he doesn't like chains. I mean, that's not Paul's idea of a good time. But again, God's glory comes first to Paul, and He's not going to shy away from doing God's will to escape affliction. And so the Holy Spirit testified to Paul and let him know a bit of what lay ahead for him. Now remember, the Holy Spirit is God. And while we believe that the way the Spirit speaks to us today is through his written word that he himself inspired... During this unique period of time in church history, when there were apostles and while the foundation of the church was still being laid down before the word of God was completed, the Spirit somehow let Paul know that tribulations and chains (coughs) awaited him in every city. Every. Did you catch that? Every city. Chains speaks of Paul being shackled and put into prison. The word for tribulations means to crush, to press together, to squash, to compress and to squeeze this word was used of squeezing olives in a press in order to extract the juice and of squeezing grapes in order to extract the juice (laughs) olives to extract the oil and grapes to extract extract the juice (laughs) conveys the idea of being placed under great pressure and of being crushed beneath a weight that's what Paul has waiting for him and he knows it We say, well, is Christ worth it, Paul? You've already had some very wretched times because of your faith and because of your calling, and look, Paul, it's going to get a lot worse, and oh yeah, Paul, in about ten years, Nero's going to behead you. Is it really worth it, Paul? Well, is it? James Calvert was a young pioneer missionary to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands, and route, the ship captain tried to dissuade him, finally crying out to him in desperation, Calvert, you're going to lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. Calvert calmly replied, we died before we came. That's well said, and he's very right. He's very correct. Jesus is our master, and we have chosen to lay down our lives for him daily, and he's worthy, and he is indeed worth it. And Paul knew that. I pray that we understand that today. Look at Paul's response in verse 24 to the promise that chains and afflictions await him in every city. Look. None of these things move me. Come on, how good is that? How good is that? None of these things move me. And this is clearly the heart of the person who knows that he is not his own but that he has been bought with the price of the precious blood of Christ. And now look, the purpose of his life is to glorify God. So therefore, none of these things move me. See, as John MacArthur pointed out, <coughs> the last thing on Paul's life list of priorities was self-preservation. That's interesting because for most people, self-preservation is the first thing on their list. I need to do this. I need to do that. I need to be happy. I need to be comfortable. I need to be safe. I need, I need, I need. Like the guy who said to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I'll follow you, but I have to go home and bury my father first. But please note that his father wasn't even dead yet. But he wanted to get the inheritance, and he wanted to be comfortable, and he wanted to take care of all his worldly needs, and he wanted to get everything in order here. And then after all of that, would he then follow after Jesus on his own terms? So clearly Jesus wasn't his first priority at all. But that wasn't the case with Paul. No, Paul instead says, I just want to do whatever God wants me to do. It's not about me, it's all about him. And if I die in the process, all the better, because that means instant glory. Paul only had one reason to live, and that was to finish the work that God had given to him. And when he was finished, God would take him home, and Paul longed for that day. Therefore, none of these things move me. For his aim isn't to not be chained up. And his aim isn't to not suffer. No, his aim is to please God. And that often comes with some pain and some chains. So be it. None of these things move me. Okay, you ask, then what is it that moved Paul? Four things. We see this in verse 24. First, Paul says, I don't count my life dear to myself. Say what? Other translations put it like this. I do not consider my life worthy of anything to myself. I count my life of no value to myself. I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. I do not place any value on my own life. So again, what? How can Paul say this? Because he knew that it's not this life that really matters, but the next. See, this life isn't dear compared to the next for us in Christ. No. For those without Christ as Lord and Savior, then this life is all that there is, and this is the best it will ever get. How sad. Because when you die without Christ, you remain in your sin, and you'll have to pay the wages of your sin in hell forever, because Jesus is the only way to escape that wrath, and you rejected Him. So, eat, drink, and be merry, because when you die, it's all bad. It's horrible. It's worse. Way, way worse. But for the saved, come on, death is our best day by far. For Jesus God the Son took the believer's sin that condemns them unto Himself and He paid our wages in our place. He died so that we could live. He became our substitute for sin. He took our wrath and paid all its wages and now by grace through faith in Christ alone we stand forgiven, clean, perfectly fit for heaven and eternal glory is what awaits us as Christians. And that's why Paul can say I don't count my life dear to myself as precious to myself, as costly to myself. For Jesus is the precious one. He's a pearl of great price, the one who is dear to me. See, not my life. Him. See? This concept is unfathomable to non-Christians and even to some sidetracked Christians, but not to the biblical Christian. Paul summed it up perfectly for us in Philippians 1.21 when he wrote, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. Gain. That's absolutely right. So while I live, Christ, His glory, His pleasure, whatever He wants, and then after that, all gain. That's countercultural. I mean, people today without Christ would say the exact opposite, right? To die is horrible. To die is wretched. To die is lost. To die is the worst, but not to Paul and not to us in Christ. Gain. The word gain is an accounting term, and what we find is that at death, Christians collect the dividends From the investment of their faith in Christ and the dividends are all good. They're all gained forever. Note that we will gain in what we lose when we in Christ die. And what is that? How about this? We will lose this sinful body temptation sorrow suffering disease enemies anxieties fears worries and so on gone forever and then on top of that we will gain a new glorified body christ holiness joy reunion with loved ones and so on oh yes it's all gain thomas watson said though death is a bitter cup there is sugar at the bottom death is a believer's best friend and he's absolutely right he's biblical death is our last step to eternal glory In fact, a Christian's death is the happiest moment of his life because the day which darkens his eye to the things of this earth opens it upon the untold, unimaginable, and ever-increasing glories of heaven. Come on. Think of what we have waiting for us in Christ. Think of what Annie Alio is experiencing right now along with the rest of the Christians who have gone on before us. Think of that. As Spurgeon said, Why do you weep for her? She's beholding her Redeemer. Her heart is throbbing with eternal joy. Why weep for the one who's in the Savior's bosom? No. Weep for yourselves that you're here. Weep that you must tarry, but don't weep for her. You say, He's right. Look, death for the Christian means no sin, no battle, no tears, no pain. It means eternal bliss, eternal joy, eternal peace, eternal glory. It means a whole lot of good family reunions. But the best thing about heaven is that our beloved Lord Jesus will be there. For as one said, labor for Christ is sweet, but rest with Christ will be sweeter. Amen to that. And there we will finally have personal, intimate, complete, unhindered, conscious, fellowship with christ the one who died to make us his and that's why paul says i don't count my life as dear to myself because i know what lies ahead christ lies ahead and someday soon i will see him face to face this god who fills me with joy unspeakable and so will all of us in christ he is our true joy and delight see look the christian's joy in life is pleasing god but in heaven we will be with him and experience that pleasure for all eternity You might remember this great illustration. It tells of a woman who had been diagnosed with a terminal illness and had been given just three months to live. As she was getting her things in order, she contacted her pastor and had him come to her house to discuss certain aspects of her final wishes. She told him which songs she wanted sung at the service, what scriptures she would like read, and even what outfit she wanted to be buried in. The woman also requested to be buried with her favorite Bible, Everything was in order, and as the pastor was preparing to leave, the woman suddenly remembered something very, very important to her. There's one more thing, she said excitedly. What's that? The pastor replied. This is very, very important, the woman said. I want to be buried with a fork in my right hand. Why is that? replied the confused pastor. The woman then explained, In all my years of attending church socials and potluck dinners, I always remember that when the dishes of the main course would be cleared, someone would inevitably lean over and say, Keep your fork. It was my favorite part because I knew that something better was coming, like velvety chocolate cake or deep dish apple pie, something wonderful, something fantastic. So I just want people to see me there in that casket with a fork in my hand, and I want them to wonder, What's with the fork? Then I want you to tell them, keep your fork, the best is yet to come. And ain't that the truth? Ain't that the truth? Paul knew that. And so he lived for that which lasts forever. He lived for that which is truly best. He focused on pleasing God rather than living for his own temporary, fading, earthly pleasures that rot and burn up. See, his life wasn't dear to him. Jesus was dear to him, and his life reflected that fact. Lord, help us to have this same biblical attitude, knowing that the best is indeed yet to come. Hey, why waste your life away on things that don't matter? When you can be living for that which lasts forever and glorifies the God whom you love. Paul got it. The second thing that moved Paul was his desire to finish his race with joy. Here, Paul likens the Christian faith to a race. That's not the only time that Paul does it. You know, uh, not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, 1 Corinthians 9.24. Not that I've already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ had laid hold of me. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, Philippians 3.12. See, Paul knew that <clears throat> when we become Christians, we not only enter a battle a very real battle, but we also enter a race. And it's not a race against each other, it's a race to the finish, it's a race to the end. And the goal in this race is to run well, and to run passionately, and to the very end. And note that ending well is very important. I mean, if you start well, but you don't end well, so what? And if you run well in the middle, but poorly at the end, how sad is that? No, we all want to finish well. And since none of us knows when the end of the race is going to be for us, we must run well today, and then tomorrow, and then the next day, and so on and so on. So Paul knows that as a Christian, he's in a race. Not to get to heaven, because he's already going to heaven, for he has been justified by grace through faith. That's done. He's already done that. That's already happened. That's already been done. But he's in this race and running well in order to please God, to fulfill his ministry, which is what he says next, to complete the stewardship which God has entrusted to him. He just wants to be faithful. He just wants to please God. So, what would enable Paul to not just finish the race, but to finish his race with joy? This, knowing that God was well pleased with how he ran and lived and served and obeyed and fulfilled his calling. He's not perfect, no, but his aim is clear. The finish line is in sight, and he's still running hard for the glory of God. Result, joy. Joy. Because joy comes when you know that God is pleased. So this is Paul's earnest desire. This is what is truly dear to him. Finishing the race with joy, knowing that God is pleased. Finishing the race while still running hard. So here's a question. Did Paul finish the race with joy? Anybody? Yes, he absolutely did. As he writes to Timothy at the end of his life in the wretched, dirty, dark Mamertine prison. Just before his head was chopped off, which brought sweet relief to Paul, he said this, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now the crown awaits. Oh yes, he finished well, and he finished with great joy, for God was pleased, see. Paul ran well, and Paul finished strong, praise the Lord. See, instead of being like the Galatians, of whom Paul said, you were running well, what hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul, on the other hand, started well, ran well in the middle, and would be sure to finish well because he stayed faithful. He kept obeying. He kept fighting. He kept pursuing God's glory in his life. He kept redeeming the time. He kept getting up whenever he fell. He kept living for that which has eternal value, result, joy. Note that the longer you run in a race, the more tired and weary you're going to get. But that's not an excuse. It just means that you have to battle even harder and dig even deeper from the source of your strength. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And so you look ahead. You stay focused. You eat your spiritual food as you continue to run. You drink your spiritual drink as you continue to run. But you keep on running. And you just take it one day at a time living for the Lord, fighting sin with passion, seeking God's glory, staying in the Word and and praying much, and and you live today for the Lord, and if tomorrow comes, you do it again for the glory of God. How are you doing? The race is fierce, but man, running well is worth it. There are many things along the way that are going to seek to trip you up, but it's worth it. There are many obstacles that are going to seek to slow you down, but the prize at the end is worth it. Him? Him? his glory, his pleasure. So keep going because running well for Christ to the very end has eternal value and brings great, great joy. Let's be like Job, who had every reason to drop out of the race from a human point of view. He lost everything. He was in utter despair, but he still said, though he slay me, I will follow him. Let's be like Job, who said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. Who said, I know that my Redeemer lives, and He shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. How my heart yearns within me. And if Job can do it, so can you. If Paul can do it, so can you. We have the same Spirit living inside of us, so run. And keep running till your very last breath, because He's worth it. Joy. As Olympian and missionary to China, Eric Little famously said, I feel his pleasure when I run. So too did Paul feel his pleasure when he ran, and so will we when we run the spiritual race well, and when we run to the end. Lord, help us. Joy. The third thing that moved Paul was his desire to minister faithfully. I want to finish my race with joy and... The ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. What ministry was that? Well, he tells us to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, we know that Paul had a special ministry that was given to him by the Lord. For Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And his aim was all about testifying to the gospel of God's grace to them, yes. But to everyone else that he possibly could. That's what moved Paul. That's what Paul desired because he knew that's what God desired. And so that's what Paul sought after with his life. Not more things, not a bigger house, not ease, not comfort, no, but to faithfully do what God called him to do, eternal value, and then die and go to glory, see? Note that just as Paul had a special ministry that God had given to him, so do we. Oh yes, we all have a general call that's for all of us in Christ, to glorify God, we are all called to do that. To obey God, to pursue God, to share his truth to the lost around us, to be salt and light in this world, to fight the battle at hand and so on. We're all called to do that, but we also have a specific ministry that God has called us to, and that's why he gave us spiritual gifts for that ministry. Every Christian has at least one gift given by God, and every Christian is called to use that gift or more for ministry, both generally and specifically. Look in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Paul writes these words. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now here we find that Paul saw himself as a steward. And his aim was to be faithful with his stewardship and so should we. Faithfulness is hard to come by. Finishing your ministry with joy isn't easy. Many are lazy Many refuse to use their gifts to bless God and his people. Many live in spiritual mediocrity and they don't seem to be too concerned. They're not like Paul, no, for they are moved by temporary fading things. May that not be the case here, but instead may we be like Paul and fulfill what God has for us faithfully and for his glory. Paul knew what God wanted from him, and so Paul earnestly sought to be a good steward of that calling. And so he preached the word even when it got him into trouble, when it made him an outcast, when he suffered greatly for it, and when he had to die for that stewardship. God was pleased, and that's what mattered. What about you? Lord, help us to be faithful stewards of what God has entrusted to us. This is indeed eternally worthwhile. Are you using your gift for ministry? Are you faithful with the general call God has for you? Lord, help us. The fourth thing that moved Paul was his desire to testify to the gospel of grace. What a wonderful description of the gospel which brings salvation, for this miracle comes about only by the amazing grace of God. What is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor toward sinners who don't deserve it. Grace is everything for nothing to those who don't deserve anything. Grace is God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. Look, we're nothing without the grace of God, and we owe everything to the grace of God. One defined grace as that goodwill on God's part, which not only provides and applies salvation, but blesses, cheers, and assists believers to glory. See, God's grace is a thing that carries us through all the way to glory. We are saved by grace, we are sustained daily by grace, and He will see us through to the end by grace. The Bible tells us that God's grace is glorious, abundant Rich, manifold, and sufficient. And don't we know it? Don't we know it? We deserve wrath. But good news God is gracious to the undeserving. And look what we get. We get God, forgiveness, life, life, eternal life. How good is that? How can this be possible? Because this is just too good to be true. How? God's amazing grace is unmerited, unfathomable, unbelievable, indelible, incredible, amazing, bountiful. Grace. What an honor for Paul to be able to testify, to be able to testify to this good news, this gospel of grace to lost and needy souls. I mean, this is true good news. This is ultimate good news. Every other news is bad news compared to the good news that Christ brings. This news has eternal bearing. This news can change where you spend all of eternity. What a privilege for Paul to be able to testify to this amazing grace of God. We too have this call. For this is a call for every believer, to be salt and light. To share Christ with the lost around us. To be the spiritual watchmen to those that we come into contact with day by day. To share the best news in the history of the world to those around us who desperately need it. And the question is, are you sharing it? Do you share it? Jesus can save your soul. I got good news for you. Jesus can forgive you of all your sin that keeps you out of heaven. Jesus, God the Son, left heaven and He came here. He lived a perfect life. He died on a cross in the believer's place. And three days later, He rose up from the dead. And because of that, for all who believe on Him in repentant faith, by God's amazing grace, you can go to heaven instead of hell. The hell that you deserve. Our sin that condemns us was put unto Christ. And He was punished for all that sin. And in return, we who believe stand justified, clean, righteous in God's sight when it's the last thing that we deserve. That's real good news. What a privilege. To be able to share this truth with people, this soul-saving truth. So do it. Not just because we should, but do it because we must. This isn't our just our privilege, but it's every Christian's command. And how could we not share it? We're living in some very interesting times, and things could be pretty depressing. But that just makes the good news all the better. So again, share it. Tell it. Show people the hope, the glorious hope that we have in Christ. Remind yourself of it and let the good news daily inspire you. And let's not let the fading things of this life move us, no. Let's let the eternal things of God, the things that matter for all eternity, move us like it moved Paul. Lord, help us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us today. Help us, Lord, to understand that The things of this earthly life are fading and fleeting. May we not be moved by those things, but may the eternal things, the things of God, the things that reflect your kingdom, bearing fruit, the things that have eternal value, may those things move us. May we not count life dear to ourselves, but may we count you dear as the dear one, and glorifying your name through us. Speak to our hearts, encourage us in these things, and help us, Lord, to live for your glory more and more. Like Paul, may he inspire us today through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.